Amen. Amen. Uh, right next to loving fall in Florida, uh, right above actually, is hearing all of you sing. I love the joyful voices and the energy this morning. Uh, it's a beautiful day all around. Uh, and kind of a, there's a finality here. This is our last message in Mark in, in full air quotes because we're outside of Mark proper. And so many of you are wondering why the strange ending in Mark. Uh, why does it seem to end in verse 8? And then if you have the ESV or most modern translations, you're going to have some uh, big explanation right in between and double brackets and then an explanation at the bottom, uh, which seems kind of strange. Either it is the ending or it isn't. So hopefully I can help with that a little bit. Um, and then really what comes up for this passage, among many where we, we see variants or differences in the, the manuscript tradition throughout history is, can we trust our Bible? Can we trust that the words here are truly divinely inspired, that we're not missing some critical part of the scriptures? And along with that, for our purposes, what is essential to Mark? And so hopefully we'll answer both of those this morning. So this is an unorthodox sermon uh, right out of the gate. There's going to be a very long introduction. Um, so this will be essentially three small sermons in one. So the first one will be on the longer ending of Mark and textual criticism. Some of you will be fascinated. Some of you won't care. But every one of you should because I want you to have confidence in the way that uh, our scriptures are uh, transmitted in our time. So that's, that's one. Number two, we're going to do a recap of the book of Mark. And number three, we're going to look at um, the more complete, a very satisfying ending at the end of Luke. Uh, so this will be 15 pounds of sermon in a five pound bag. So let's go. Um, first thing, textual criticism. So there is a discipline of study within Christian theology, and really this is in the, 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 the broader literary world. And so when we speak of textual criticism, it means that people are devoted to studying ancient text. And criticism, not in a negative way, but we're going to look at it critically. We're going to um, almost kind of like, uh, uh, like textual archaeology. We're going to look back at these ancient texts, and we're going to study them, and we're going to know them top to bottom. Like, have you ever seen archaeologists where they set up a grid with all of these lines, and they know what's in every little, little quadrant, and they catalog where we found it, where it is, and then they catalog which museum it goes to? Very similar with, with our biblical texts. And so this discipline is one I am very, very thankful for, because I'm very, very thankful I don't have to do it. Um, and I know guys who do this, and they're what you'd expect them to be, brilliant men um, who are not the most entertaining in a dinner conversation. Um, but I am so thankful for brothers who labor to this end. Um, and uh, one of my, my Greek professor was one. And so if you're wondering kind of more of what I'm talking about, there's a book on the shelf, uh, how we got our Bible back there. It's a very brief introductory uh, overview of, of uh, textual criticism. And it's, it's very helpful to know why we can trust the Old Testament, the New Testament, why the Apocrypha are, are not uh, canonical scripture, and how it was seen in the time of the apostles and in the early church and things like that. Um, 
So one of the things that was most comforting to me when I first studied textual criticism was to find out, and this is something that's good for Christians to hear, that Christian scholars are more critical of our text than the skeptics are. Let me tell you what I mean by that. There are many out there who say, well, you can't trust the Bible because of X, Y, or Z because uh, there are this, these inconsistencies or this and that. We, we have all of our um, flaws or inconsistencies, and we'll address those in just a moment, but every difference in every manuscript we have up front. I forgot to bring my prop today. I was going to bring my, my Greek New Testament, but I'm sure somebody has, has one. You guys have a RBC. You guys use the, the Nestle Elan. So I forgot to bring it. Um, but basically, if you look at our Greek New Testament that, that, that we hold, that every Bible study student uh, will, will carry, there's, there's two major, uh, major printers of those. You'll have the text at the top, and at the bottom is what's called the, an apparatus. And so in that apparatus, um, Trey's going to bring one up. Of course, someone has one. All right, thank you, Daniel. Appreciate it. So, um, for all of you who read Greek, and there's a handful of you here, so just putting it out there, it is really intimidating to preach each week knowing that there are people holding Greek New Testament. So, I got to be very careful on, on what I say. So, you won't be able to see it from there, um, but the, uh, the top of the, the, the book will have the text itself. And, like in our study Bibles, you have notes at the bottom. But what these notes mean is that every variant, and when we say variant, that is essentially if there is one comma, they didn't have commas in, in the original text, but one letter, one word that is different, we, we catalog it, we name it, and we tell you where it is. So this papyrus has it here, this codex has it here, this one's in London, this one's in, in Rome. So if you want to see the difference, you can go for yourself. And if you want these texts, they are actually printed. So you can buy very expensive, large books with every one of these manuscripts in them. And so the, the New Testament, we can have confidence in it because our scholars are saying, hey, we know, where every, we know where every manuscript is. We know where every fragment of every text of Scripture is going all the way back to the beginning of the second century, so early 100s, and even, uh, even some are debated that they're in the late first century. So within 50 to 60 years of the ministry of Christ, and certainly uh, 50 years within the ministry of the apostles. And so we can have great confidence in that. And when you're, you're reading these and you come upon a, a reading that says, well, there are three different uh, variants. And so often a variant is like one will say Jesus Christ. One will say Christ. One will say Christ Jesus. Those are three variants. Most of the variants are like that. So let me give you one example. So if you have your, your Bibles here, and the ESV has, has a little note. I think it's in verse 44. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. There's a, there's a note there in the ESV. So that's a, a textual variant. Let me tell you what the variant is. There is one Greek word, uh, or excuse me, two Greek words that says if already. That's one. That's, our, that's the one that, that, that we go with. There's a second one that says, if already. But a different word for already that can also mean now. And then there's a third one that says if. So any of them, and, and that's just the, uh, the literal translation of those words. It, it's different within the construction of the sentence. But any of those fits. None of those are anything to be concerned with theologically. Um, and so I just want you to have confidence when you hear skeptics, when you hear people say, well, oh, the Bible has all of these, these errors. We, we lead with them. We, we know where the, the, the variants are. There is a difference. So um, 
And when you think about, well, how could there be so many differences? Well, have you ever played a telephone game? You play the telephone game where you, you transmit a message from one person's ear to the, to the next. That's typically how people will say that the Bible is transmitted. It's not how it's transmitted. transmitted. Um, there's many, many dedicated scholars who over hundreds of years would devote them, their, their lives to reprinting by hand, verse after verse, chapter after chapter, book after book. Um, Dr. James White, who's one of the, the, the foremost scholars in this, he gives a great example. If every one of us today were to take the, take the Pew Bible in front of you, the same exact version, and uh, we were to reprint the, God, the uh, excuse me, Paul's Roman epistle, Romans, from beginning to end by hand, how many of us would get it perfect? Would anyone miss a comma, a period, misspell a word, put Jesus instead of Jesus Christ? Would, would many of us revert to the translation with which we, we, we memorized some of these verses? And so this is what happens over hundreds or thousands of years. But even then, there are very minuscule differences. But I want you to have confidence because there is not one that affects a doctrine. There is not one that says you need to be saved by the name of Jesus and forget the name of Jesus. It's nothing like that. There is no major doctrine that is affected by any of these. They're all very minor, and we don't, we don't hide from them. What also should give you encouragement, and there is not one ancient document that is attested or supported as well as the New Testament. We have close to 6,000 fragments and major manuscripts for just the Greek New Testament. It's not even counting the Old Testament. To put it in perspective... The most well-attested secular work is Homer's Iliad. And maybe um, they're, they're close to 1,000. But they have man their first manuscript is 900 years removed from his writing. Our first fragment is less than 100. Think about that. The most well-attested secular work doesn't even come close to the New Testament. And it's close to 6,000 fragments because we're finding more almost on a monthly basis as um, archaeology continues to uncover uh, scrolls and things from that, that era. And um, it's, it's, perf it's a perfect breeding ground because in the dry climate of the Middle East, those things are preserved really well over time. Um, all right, so... Enough on textual criticism in general. I want to address the longer ending of, of Mark. So this is the longest and most significant variant in the entire Bible. So I, I had to address it. Um, and many of you asked, and it's good for you to know. Um, so I want you to know about the, this, this longer ending of, of Mark. Um, we'll, we'll talk about what we would call like the, the canonical position or the historical position versus the majority position. The historical position is basically the, the oldest, most reliable manuscripts are those we're going to lean on. And so the oldest, most reliable manuscripts do not include this long ending of Mark. And the oldest, most reliable church historians are not aware of it. So when I say oldest, I'm saying fourth century. This is 300s. So the, the two complete, from Matthew to Revelation, the two complete uh, scriptures, New Testaments that we have, uh, which are Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, uh, the long codexes, so they're, they're, they're books, they don't contain them. These are the, the, the most respected across the board. So the oldest, most complete New Testaments do not contain them. Um, versus what we call the majority tradition. So um, 
unapologetically, more biblical texts have the longer ending of Mark than don't. This is one of the reasons why it's included. But those texts don't even begin until 100 years uh, after Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. And we don't see them in the majority of texts until 500 years later. So we're talking about the 9th century. So from the 4th century to the 9th century. So when things like the King James were written, we didn't have these, these earlier texts. So they're dealing with a majority of texts, but they arose later in the Greek tradition and then later in the, the, the Latin tradition. So we have a lot of them, but they are much later and less reliable. Make sense? So that's why we, um, we, we don't, one of the reasons why we don't include it. Also, there are multiple endings of Mark. And if you go into the, the, the different endings of Mark, there are many textual variants. There are, there are many uh, disagreements and, and, and many different versions of those endings. So that's kind of the, the historical perspective. What we have here, ending in verse 8, is much earlier and much more reliable than what's, what's there. Here's the other thing, linguistically, I could spend a whole sermon on this, but if you read um, the longer ending of Mark, especially in the Greek, it does not read like the rest of Mark. We've noticed in Mark, he uses and, 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 and. If you look at the first eight verses, how many sentences begin with and? 16.2, and, 16.3, and, 16.4, and, 16.5, and, 16.6, and. Do you see that in the longer ending? I could go on and on and on. Mary Magdalene, who's spoken of in chapter 15 and chapter 16. She's already been introduced. She's a primary character in the last day of Jesus' life, but the writer of this longer ending feels the need to say from whom he cast out seven demons in verse 9. Why would you need to include a detail of a woman who's already part of the story? There are, in addition, there are 18 Greek words in this, these last few verses that are not anywhere else in Mark, that Mark uses nowhere else. Words that are used later in, in later traditions. Mark is the earliest gospel, one of our uh, earlier New Testament books. Um, also, Mark never refers to, if you look at verses 19 and 20, he never refers to Jesus as Lord Jesus or the Lord. This comes later in Christendom where the apostles use the Lord as, as, as a proper title. But it didn't exist, it, it wasn't commonplace earlier on. So Mark nowhere uses those terms. Um, and there is no mention anywhere else in the New Testament of drinking poison. So probably good reason for that. So with those and um, many other reasons, I don't think that the longer ending of Mark uh, is there. What I think, this is the, the best explanation I've heard, and I've read lots of people on this, is that it's kind of a later appendix. There's a scribe who's translating this, and he's like, this is, this is kind of abrupt. So we need something more here. So he kind of puts this like theological summary on at the end of, of what he understands, and, and it just because it, it, it helps our sensibilities to have some kind of closure, well, we like this one better, so that got transmitted. Uh, so I, that's what I, I think happened. So one of the things I, I want you to, to, to think about when, when um, people argue about this particular ending or doctrines within it, this is a prime example of why we don't base a primary doctrine on one verse of Scripture or even a, or even a uh, disputed verse of Scripture. 
So uh, if you look in verse 18, they will pick up serpents with their hands. Uh, this is an easy one. Um, but it's a good example of why we don't hold so tightly to one verse and um, why we shouldn't be dependent on, on, on this. So um, just fun fact for the day, snake handling in church services is illegal in every state but West Virginia. Of, someone said, of course. But why not? And if you're from West Virginia, you're not surprised, so I'm not apologizing. That's West Virginia, right. Over 100 churches still practice it today. Yes, yeah, exactly. The most famous or the most infamous is the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ with signs. It just reminds me of like the, the, the Lucky Charms commercial, now with rainbows. You know, it's like the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ now with signs. Let me tell you about some of those signs still going on to this day. They certainly handle snakes. They also hand out strychnine, poison in little Dixie cups. They have a, a moonshine jug of strychnine, and if you, are, if you have enough faith, you can drink poison. They also create their own little uh, tiki torch things that they hold to their neck. Uh, kind of reading, I think, Isaiah 43, you'll walk through the fire and not get burned. Um, what else? Uh, yeah, that's enough. But this is, not what they are, this is not what they are famous for. Here's what they're infamous for. The current pastor, as far as I could tell, nothing has happened to him, took over from the previous pastor, his father, who died from a snake bite. And his brother also died from a snake bite. Not enough faith. Absolutely. Um, so, that's why you don't uh, so this is why we don't handle snakes, one of many reasons. Uh, and, 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 and you couldn't support it from this longer ending anyway. So why is this longer ending included? Um, probably because of the historical tradition, because so many manuscripts include it. Because most people, if you grew up on the, the uh, King James, you're, you're, you're used to it. It's, it's, it's familiar to people. And it's standard translation practice to say, we don't think this is early. We don't think this is original. But because of church history, we're going to keep it here. The other natural question is why end in verse 8? And Jonathan didn't have an answer definitively. And I don't have an answer definitively. We don't know why Mark ended here, but Jonathan had a great question last week. What this ending should lead you to say is, who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Who do you say that I am? But what I want to prove now with, uh, yeah, we got time. Uh, the rest of Mark offers enough content and evidence to answer that, that question. We shouldn't feel, um, we shouldn't feel neglected or, or, or left out of the end of the story because the rest of Mark, what we'll do in this next section, gives us an, enough evidence and proof for what Mark is trying to claim and the other gospel writers attest to it as well. So let's pray and then we're going to walk back through Mark rather quickly. Heavenly Father, we love you, we praise you, we thank you that you are great and awesome, that through your spirit and through your servants, you spoke to us in your word. It is infallible, it is inerrant, and uh, we thank you that you have preserved it over the years, that you have given us men who have devoted themselves to rigorous study of your word, and it is by that rigorous study that should give us confidence 
that the Bibles that we hold in our hands are consistent in the message. They are consistent in being received by human authors and consistent in glorifying Jesus Christ. Um, that everything will pass away. The flowers and the field and the mountains, but the word of the Lord will not pass away. And we praise you that we can learn of you and know you and draw closer to you and praise you because of your word. And so now as we conclude this book and open your word, I pray that your spirit would bless our time, our last few moments together, and bring to remembrance the teaching of Christ. And if anyone in this room does not know him, that you would quicken them, that you would make them alive within their spirit, that they would hear the name of Jesus Christ and they would hear the message of repent and believe in him and that they would come to saving faith and new life in Christ. And it is in his name I pray, amen. All right, here's the other, the, the last textual criticism note I will give you as we go through Mark. There is not one other disputed passage within Mark. Even the most liberal skeptic scholars would agree that all of Mark is original except for the ending. So everything we're about to go through right now is, with, uh, is without argument. So let's begin with verse 1. I did a whole sermon on verse 1-1. One, one. This is a theological, a systematic theological statement in itself. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is Mark's thesis statement. His entire gospel aim is to know that this good news is of Jesus Christ, not any man but the Son of God, and there's only one of him. And everything after this will declare and proclaim who he is. This is what I am setting out to do in writing this gospel. And so the important message of Jesus is right up front as well in verse 14 of chapter 1. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. This gospel message has not changed. The words that Jesus himself proclaimed with his own lips, we are to proclaim. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Truly man, truly God, the son of man, the son of God. The perfect one come to earth to lay down his life for his people who took his life back up again that they might have life with him. This repent and believe message was first and foremost in Mark's gospel and Jesus' ministry and should be first and foremost on our lips. So for the next few chapters, if you're familiar with the gospel of Mark or if you're familiar with any of the gospels, if you spent one of our many weeks with us, we see Jesus teach and heal and perform miracles and dispute with the Pharisees and walk throughout Judea back and forth to Jerusalem and you see him appoint 12. Now this number should bring to mind the very beginning of the creation of the nation of Israel. Jacob has 12 sons, the 12 fathers, the 12 patriarchs of the tribes. This is the foundation of Israel. And so, if you're going to bring in a new covenant and a new Israel, you need the 12 pillars of a spiritual Israel. And this is what Jesus is doing. The, the imagery throughout the book 
It's saying this is very much the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of the, the types and shadows, all the glimpses of the kingdom of God that you saw in the Old Testament, here are true in the flesh, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. And so as Jonathan mentioned last week, there are three predictions of his humiliation, so his beating and mocking and all that, his crucifixion, his death, burial, resurrection, three times. You don't need to have a, a full completion in Mark because we'll, we'll get there. The last words put a nice close on this. But Jesus told us what was going to happen, and Mark shows that it happened three times. What I want to spend some time on is the literary, so the literary and theological center of the book. So turn to Mark chapter 8. We're smack dab in the middle, but we're also in the theological middle of the book. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. This is, this is uh, continuing the, the theme, but in Peter's confession, we see... The idea of, of, of the book kind of coming into picture. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. This is a very important statement. Now, in our culture, Christ is thrown around as a byword, as a curse word. But to them, in their culture, to Jews, everything that was wrapped up in the, the Christ is meant by the term. This is the promised servant of God. This is the promised king. This is the last prophet. This is the, the, the promised high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This is the, the, the promised son of man who receives glory from the ancient of days. This is the rightful ruler of Israel. This is the king of the tribe of Judah. When he says, you are the Christ, Peter means all that. And that's why Jesus says in the next verse, strictly tell no one about him. Because his time was not yet. There was such a powerful statement. And Mark puts it directly in the center of the book. This whole section is, is loaded. Continuing on uh, to verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Here's the first prediction. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And we saw all that completed in Mark's gospel. And he said this plainly. Peter rebukes him. We won't get to Peter. But I want you to skip down. Verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them. So notice, tied right to, you are the Christ. The Christ must suffer and die and rise again. Right next to that, verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So what does this mean for the reader? For the reader, it means that you can't just say Jesus is Lord. You can't just recite the Apostles' Creed and not follow after him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him die to himself and take up his cross and follow me. When you hear these words, if you hear them and believe them, you can't separate it from following Jesus Christ. You can't separate it from following behind him. Because, or for, in verse 35, whoever would save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. When you read this and you recognize who Jesus is, if you still want yourself, if you still want to be the king on the throne, if you still want to be God in your own eyes, if you still want to live according to your own passions and your own desires, you will lose your life. You will die forever and ever and ever. You will die apart from Christ. You will die in your sin. You will die with the wrath of God fully upon you. You must die to yourself so that you can live to Christ. Jesus goes on, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's exactly what he's saying here. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is saying, you don't know how valuable eternity is. You should give everything for it. You cannot put a price on eternity with me. You don't know how valuable your soul is. And then he takes it a step further. Not only are you to follow me, to die to yourself, to give up your life, but for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That should be humbling. Because every one of us in this room, even believers, has been ashamed of the name of Jesus. Every one of us has shrunken away from speaking his name and, and, and proclaiming his excellencies. That's what happened to you. <laughs> and so to put the final period on this illustrious theological sentence, the next few verses, look at verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Just to continue on, you are the Christ. The Christ is going to suffer and die. If you want to be united with the Christ, you must follow him and leave everything else behind. And just so you know that I'm the Christ, I'm going to stand in full glory on a mountaintop. And I'm going to bring Elijah and Moses back from the dead so that they can attest to me. And you are going to tell everyone else that you saw me in my glory so that they don't doubt. Mark includes this for our confidence. There are two more predictions of the death, burial, resurrection. There's the triumphal entry where he moves into Jerusalem, sees the distortion and the corruption that are going on in the temple, and he overturns the tables. He, he, he cleanses the, or, or clears the, the temple, prefiguring a cleansing of this, this institution that can no longer faithfully represent the people of God. It was never meant to. The blood of bulls and goats must be spilled forever if people are to be saved. He is showing them he's going to create a new temple, a temple of his flesh, not made by human hands, so that people can approach God and won't have to deal with the corruptions of man and the, the unfaithful priests. He goes on in chapter 12 to show that, that the, 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 the Christ is greater than David. Because the Lord says to my Lord from Psalm 110, he is king, but he is also high priest. Uh, he goes on to promise persecution and salvation in chapter 13. The, the thing that is already, picking up, this is chapter 13, verse 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. This is the now. 
And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against the parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The gospel will be preached. People will be saved. Do not fear the world. This is our age. But then the end of this age is coming in those days going down to verse 24. In those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth um, to the ends of heaven. Know for a time there will be persecution, but the gospel must go. But also know, I am coming back for you. And I am coming back with all the hosts of heaven. The spiritual warriors that are around my throne will come and bring back my own. Amen. And bring to rubble this wicked and cursed world so that it can be recreated. So his Passion Week begins in the plot and the betrayal and being turned over. Chapter 14, verse 61. Jesus clearly declares who he is. The high priests and the elders are lodging all these accusations against him, but he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asks him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? They are not stupid. They know what they're asking. They know what is implied within this term. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And when people tell you, Jesus never claimed to be God, take them here. And Jesus says, I am, ego a me, Yahweh. I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. He's quoting Daniel 7. The one that the Ancient of Days, the Father of Heaven, gives his power and glory and dominion to, that's me. And if you think that the, the Sanhedrin dismissed this as, as just the rantings of a crazy man, they knew what this was, verse 63. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him to deserving death. They went ballistic. Because Jesus said in that statement, I am the God, the God-man from the prophet Daniel who could stand before the Ancient of Days with boldness and be given the glory that existed with him and for him throughout all history. I am him. But even in their beating and slapping and mocking he did not lash out. He did not revile as we saw on Wednesday night. Peter reminds them of that. Jesus did not come for his own pride. He didn't need to defend his honor. He didn't need to stand up to them as he well could have and, and, and would have been right within his, within his prerogative too. But because of the joy set before him, because for us, he endured the shame and the mockery and the beating and the crucifixion, he went silently, like a lamb led to the slaughter. The next chapter, we get the first declaration of who Jesus is uh, in as the Son of God. Now, we get it from demons and angels before. 
but now from a human, a Gentile. Chapter 15, verse 39. And then when the centurion who stood facing him, remember I brought this detail up a couple weeks ago. Everyone else wags their, their, their tongues. The disciples are running away. He stands facing him, looks him right in the face. And he said, truly, this man was the son of God. To fulfill Mark's purpose, this is a glorious example. And if you think that the end of Mark is anticlimactic, let's just look at verse 6 of chapter 16. Everything we need to know is in verse 6 and 7. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. It ends beautifully. It ends with the assurance and the calm, fear not. He's not here, but he's faithful and true, and he keeps his word, and he's, and he's waiting for you. Mark includes everything that we need, and we just scratched the surface. We spent 73 weeks in this book. And so when we think, do I have enough to trust? I want you to consider something. Uh, the Grand Canyon, 2,000 square miles of natural wonder. Millions of people every year flock to see this spectacle. It is incredible. And People go with complete confidence that it's there. No one ever thinks, I'm going to drive out to the middle of the Midwest or the, the, the West and expecting to see the Grand Canyon and there's nothing there. I mean, it is so clearly evidenced. There are pictures and videos and all these things. I would love to go one of, those day, one of these days. It's a you know, bucket list kind of thing. And I have complete confidence to go and visit it, but I've never seen it with my own eyes. How can I do that? Well, because the evidence is so clear. Like, I would be a fool to doubt that the Grand Canyon is even there. You don't need to defend its existence. You just declare it, and you commend it confidently. Go to the Grand Canyon. I've never seen it. I've never been there, but I know it's amazing because everything that, every bit of evidence that we have um, supports it. So here's what I want you to come away with this with. So it is with the gospel of Mark. So it is with the scriptures. I want you to consider, we live in an era where if it, if it doesn't exist on video, we don't know if it actually happened. But for that time, when documents were burned and destroyed and eaten by, by, by moth and uh, floods and all kinds of damage, there are plenty of documents that have been lost to history. But the evidence is overwhelming. Like, for the preservation techniques of their time, it is astounding that we have all the evidences that we have for our, our scriptures. Um, and if you're looking at it historically, no other historical event is more well represented and more consistently represented than the life and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, we tend to be a little bit removed and we, we've got this, this elitist view of anything old, maybe not us in this room, but our, our culture. 
But for what exists for the historical documents that exist, if you ever look into it, it is astounding how much proof and evidence exists of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And all of the New Testament witnesses and even secular witnesses. It's beautiful when we, when we think about what we hold in our hands that has been preserved for us. That Jesus lived a sinless life in complete obedience to the Father. That he voluntarily gave up this life for the sake of his people. That he was crucified at the hands of lawless men. That he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And he promises eternal life to whoever believes in him. He is faithful and true. You can stake your life on it. Amen. Amen. And as far as the longer ending of Mark is concerned, as I said, there's no major doctrine that is in dispute. The only one that is not, the only doctrine that's addressed in there is the drinking of poison in the New Testament. So we're good because it shouldn't be anyway. Um, But what I want to do in our last few minutes together is uh, the major points from the long ending. I want to kind of wrap it up for you. So here's the major things that we see in the longer ending of Mark. That we, can, uh, that we can clearly declare from other parts of Scripture so we're not really losing anything. Uh, one would appear several times in the longer ending of Mark is the appearances. He appeared to the women. He appeared to the twelve. He appeared to Simon. Also the disbelief. They didn't immediately get it. Then also the commission. He sends them out to proclaim the gospel um, and then signs and wonders that that accompany the proclaiming of the gospel, and finally the ascension, him going up to the right hand of the Father in glory. So quickly, the appearances can be found uh, mostly in, in John. John does a great job in chapter 20 and chapter 21. If you want to read about those appearances to the women and doubting Thomas and different appearances to the disciples over 40 days, you can go there. Uh, this detail that it's over 40 days was given to us in Acts 1. If you want to see the... Um, the signs and wonders, we see those all throughout Acts. We see the ascension in, in Acts. As far as the Great Commission, we get the most famous account of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Um, but you get all of them in Luke 24. Uh, and so Luke 24, if you'll turn there, and this is where we're going to land. Um, this is kind of the, the satisfying conclusion that, that, that everyone wants. Um, and I, I love the ending of Luke for this reason. And so if, you know, those, those, those questions that you get, get asked, like if you could be anywhere in history, where would you go? If you could talk to anyone in history, if you could be a fly on a wall in any room, this is where I would want to be. If I got one shot, if I get my, my, my one time machine moment, I want to be walking on the road to Emmaus, hearing Jesus teach Jesus from the Old Testament. I want to hear a biblical theology class from the words of our Savior and I would trade the rest of my life to go and be there and walk on that, on that road and to sit in the room and to have him be revealed to you. And so I, I want to get into these, these details. And here's why I love Luke. Luke is a brilliant writer, but he puts you quite literally in, in the sandals of the disciples. He, he, he brings you into their lives. You can feel the, the dirt between their toes. You can feel the emotions that are, that, that are within them. They had just lost their, their master. They were, they were confused, they were, they were doubting, and uh, they were trying to make sense of it all. And then Jesus appears to them. And the risen Christ 
You, you can see in, Mar, in, in Luke's writing how he opens their eyes and their hearts to know him. So I want to pick up in verse 13. We're going to kind of move through here and then uh, have co- three quick points of application. So Luke 13, or excuse me, Luke 24, verse 13. That very day, this is resurrection day, same day. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And then when they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near to them and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Amazing. And he said to them, I love this. What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you, as you walk? Jesus is just throwing them a softball. Jesus is like, okay, tell me, I'm a stranger. And they stood still looking sad. Luke brings you into their countenance at the moment. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these last days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Listen to their description. Accurate, but incomplete. A man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They knew what the Christ meant. Little did they know. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. You can almost hear the deflated nature of their voice. We had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. We even had people say that they saw angels, this great prophet. We went and saw the tomb, but we didn't see him. This is why Jesus responds the way he does. Verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And here comes the the book I wish I had a 10-volume commentary on. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Man, I wish I could be there. I got like my little drum kick back here. Um, so this is what's going on on, on the road. And then they, they go to meet the rest of the disciples. I want to pick up in, in verse 30. Uh, when he was, and they invite him to, to come in for dinner. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And, he said to, and they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road while he opened us the scriptures? Imagine that. Jesus is walking with you and someone asks you a question that's too simple, but something is stirring within you. My heart is burning. This is something that Luke picks up on. He addresses their heart all the way through. Remember what Jesus said in verse 25, Oh, foolish and slow of heart. 
Their hearts were burning within them, but they missed the sign. So we're going to, yeah, go on. Verse 33. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them and gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Verse 36, and as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Again, Luke brings up their hearts. Them who are slow of heart. They didn't listen to the hearts, the burning within their hearts And the doubt is still there. But Jesus, because of his love for them and his patience for them, condescends as he does with us. Why are you troubled? He knew they thought they saw a spirit. He says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He's giving them right then, here are the proof that I'm alive, that I am truly a man. That the body that you saw on the cross is now resurrected and it still bears the scars. And if that isn't enough, give me some food. I'm going to eat in front of you so you know that I'm not a spirit. Jumping ahead to verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Fulfilled. This is the threefold division of the Jewish Old Testament. The law. This is the Pentateuch, the, the, the five books of, of Moses. Everything in the law written about me will be fulfilled and has been fulfilled. The prophets. This is beginning with Joshua and going through all of the, the historical books. Everyone who spoke for the people of God. Everything in the prophets has been fulfilled. And then the Psalms, the first book in the book of writings. Every poetic utterance, every song, every poem declares me. And then he opens their minds to understand the scriptures. Oh, man. Ever read the Bible and feel like that? We're like, I've read this a hundred times and it doesn't make sense. And then I read it again. And it's like the Lord has opened my mind to understand the scriptures. Praise God for the Holy Spirit. Who he sent that we can read the scriptures and know him and be reminded of these things. And come to clear understandings of the scriptures. And he said to them, verse 46, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that all, excuse me, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You yourselves, uh, you are witnesses of these things. Here is Luke's version of the Great Commission. It's the same message that Jesus preached from the beginning. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Go, make disciples, baptize them, remind them of everything. Knowing that I have authority under heaven over all things, and I will be with you to the end of the age. You as my witnesses, go. They saw him, they ate with him, they touched him, and then he sent them out as witnesses. And behold, verse 49. I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. That's the the giving of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost later in Acts. And so Luke kind of rounds this whole thing out with the ascension. 
Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. If you have truly seen the risen Christ, if he has revealed himself to you, as the Spirit has opened your eyes to understand the scriptures, you have no choice but to praise God, to glorify God that he sent his son for you. And we should be the people who are joyful to proclaim his name because he is no longer in the grave. He has risen again and he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He sits on the seat of power, the throne of glory, and reigns over all creation and intercedes for us as our high priest. Amen? Amen. Three quick points of application. We went into that section at the beginning because I want you to be informed and assured of the Bible that you hold in your hands. Uh, there's plenty more research out there. If you need recommendations, I'm happy uh, to help you. But I just want you to understand, uh, our Bibles are not put together haphazardly. And this is not uh, some bumbling science. This is dedicated, uh, faithful work. And I'm thankful for the scriptures that we have. And I want you to be as well. Number two. Uh, I hope that you have been encouraged and emboldened as I have going through the gospel of Mark. I hope that you have confidence that we have good news, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That if you repent of your sins and you believe in him, you will have everlasting life. And we can believe his words because they are true. And we can believe because he reigns right now. Number three, um, practically speaking, as we look through Luke, don't grow callous or cold to the beauty of the gospel. Don't lose sight of how amazing it is that God took on flesh and walked among us. Don't think of yourself as removed, so far removed from the apostles that you can't understand the burning within their hearts. If we have the Holy Spirit, that burning should be within our hearts. When we hear the voice of our Savior, when we read the scriptures, when the, when the Holy Spirit opens our minds. And so my hope for you is that your hearts are stirred to love and serve the risen Christ. I also hope for you that you live in awe and wonder of Emmanuel who walked like us, to walk before us, to go uh, on our behalf to the cross. And I hope you find comfort and the forgiveness of sins in his name that is proclaimed. And I hope you desire to be like the apostles, witnesses of the risen Christ to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. Uh, we thank you that you are faithful throughout all the ages. That you sent your son, the faithful and true one. That you've left us with your spirit, the faithful witness and counselor to your great plan of redemption. We thank you for entrusting faithful men to write down scriptures and faithful men to preserve them. We thank you that we hold in our hand with the church throughout the ages the one and only true word of God. 
that we stand with the apostles and the prophets. We stand with the church fathers. We stand with those throughout the Middle Ages. We stand with those throughout the Reformation. We stand with those who reformed the churches in Europe. We stand with those who sent the gospel around the world. We, we, we stand with those who continue to preach and hold fast to the word of truth. We stand with our brothers and sisters all over the globe who bow their knees and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We stand as one true and united militant church that looks forward to the day when we are united in one unified triumphant church to the glory of God the Father, to the praise of Jesus Christ our Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit. And as the name of our great God I pray. Amen.